0: this season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu IPS. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, the language of a centuries-old book, first compiled in 1549, stirs the souls of two 20th-century poets. They, in turn, help to shape the revision of that book and its language for generations to come. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is J. Chester Johnson, a poet, essayist, and translator. Johnson has published numerous volumes of poetry, most recently St. Paul's Chapel and selected shorter poems in its second edition. His writings have been published domestically and abroad and translated into several languages. He's also composed many works on the American civil rights movement, six of which are included in the civil rights archives at Queens College. From 1971 to 1979, he worked on the revision of the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer, a position he took over from the late English poet W.H. Auden. He writes about this experience in his book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. J. Chester Johnson, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Well, thank you very much, David, and it's a pleasure and honor to be on.
0: Well, so we're going to be talking today about a book that you wrote called Auden, the Psalms, and Me, and the book has sort of an amazing story to it, and it's not just a story that is trapped in one particular piece of time, but it's actually a story that draws back into the very language that we speak. I'm very much looking forward to unearthing some of these mysteries with you. But to begin with, let's just start with the title of the book. So, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. When we say the name Auden, who are we talking about, Mr. Johnson?
1: We're talking about W.H. Auden. He was uh, born in the um, early 1900s and came to the United States in the uh, the 1930s, late, very late 1930s, and uh, lived most of his life, his, certainly his professional life here in the United States, and actually in New York City, although he, um, he taught at various institutions throughout the country. And he, I would have to say that he's the most celebrated poet, certainly alongside T.S. Eliot in the, of the English language uh, during the 20th century.
0: Well, and so in in looking at this man, W. H. Auden, if our listeners are unfamiliar with him, it, would there be one poem or maybe a couple of poems that they might have heard of, even if they haven't heard of him?
1: Well, I guess it was four weddings and a funeral that was a movie that was popular a few a few years ago. A poem of his was read at the at sort of the seminal funeral at the, in that movie, which is um, "Stop All the Clocks," which is a very famous poem. There's one that was circulated uh, after 9/11 called September the 1st, 1939, which was. It, it had a common thread that is September the 1st, 1939, was the day that uh, Germany invaded Poland and the attacks against the Polish people occurred, and and there was a certain thread that ran through that poem that was that people felt was common to the 9-11 attacks that occurred uh, here in New York City and Washington, D.C., and then maybe two or three others in memory of W.B. Yeats, probably his most uh, famous early poem. There are a number of lines out of that 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 people may be familiar with. So, uh, those are three that, but I could go on about it. But those are those are uh, those are three. For example, in September 1st 1939, people remember George Bush's uh, program for a thousand points of light. Well, that that actually came out of September 1st 1939. So um, yeah, you know, Auden was definitely a a most celebrated poet, and um, I, I had the distinct pleasure and honor of. Um, working with him for a while. Uh, he, he deserved to be part of the title as well as the contents of the book of my most recent book.
0: Well, and, and so let's go through the next word on that title. So it's Auden, the Psalms, and me. And so next to talk about the Psalms, so... We were talking about the kind of cultural impact that some listeners might know Auden through his poem, Stop All the Clocks from Four Weddings and a Funeral. But one of the things that you begin to say in this book is that we might even know Auden from his influence on other aspects of our culture, in particular his work on the Psalms in the Book of Common Prayer. And so, first of all, just talk to us for a moment about why the Book of Common Prayer should be of any interest to anyone outside the Episcopal Church.
1: Well, for one thing, I, maybe I can make this personal because I, I grew up as a Methodist, but I was always attracted to the uh, literature and the um, beauty of the language that was contained in the Book of Common Prayer. Even though, as I said, I was a I was a Methodist, and the Book of Common Prayer has a a lot of literary history to it. I mean, first of all, um, the the entire Book of Common Prayer was put together in 1549 and the person who did it was Thomas Cranmer who was the first archbishop of Canterbury and he was a I mean he didn't necessarily consider himself a poet but his facility with, with language was in my in my opinion may have in fact made him the father of the, of Elizabethan literature because other than the Bible the book of common prayer is actually the most quoted Book in the uh, English language, so that's pretty heavy-duty stuff in terms of how important this is. And over time, you can see—I mean, George Herbert reliance on certain language, um, C.S. Lewis and, and uh, T.S. Eliot actually were brought in in the 1950s to work on the English, the Psalms in the um, in the book of English Book of Common Prayer. So there's a significant relationship between literature uh, of the um, Western civilization, certainly of the English language, and this Book of Worship.
0: Now, when we say it's the most quoted book, I want to make sure that the listeners are clear on what you mean. Do you mean that people are literally borrowing phrases from the book, or are people did it help to shape the way in which spelling or certain types of words were used? What do we mean when we say it's the second most quoted book in the English language?
1: Words such as, you know, the have and the hold, that actually comes out of the Book of Common.
0: They come out, you
1: know, marriage vows of dust to dust and ashes to ashes. That's, you know, that's out of the Book of Common Prayer. Those are out of um, ceremonies within the Book of Common Prayer, which many other denominations Incorporated within their own um, worship services, there are words like tender mercy and movable feast and hardening, uh, you know, hard, hardness of heart. You know, you can just go on and on about lines that were that were taken out of out of the Book of Common Prayer that are quoted in other uh, in other pieces.
0: This is amazing because I, I would have thought that the genesis of those kinds of phrases would have come more from Shakespeare. So I'm, I'm amazed that, that uh, a religious book—maybe I, I shouldn't be amazed that a religious book is so fundamental and foundational because when you, when you said some of those phrases like ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or to have and to hold, it's almost like that's the water that we're swimming in. It's, it's hard to believe that those words even had an originary point, and to, to realize that it's there in this book, that's mind-blowing to me.
1: Well thank you I, it is it is fascinating I mean part of that was um, you know the, the Catholic Church was in Latin at least prior to the Reformation. The Reformation occurred in around the time of Henry VIII's break away from the Catholic Church so there was a lot of this translation that was going on and language like that while it's derivative of of Latin it had its own and those phrases came either in, in the form of the prayers, what's known as colic in the Book of Common Prayer, or they were written by a translator named Miles Coverdale, who had translated the Great Bible of 1540. and it was those psalms that went into the, um, went into the Book of Common Prayer. So it's those, those two, they're really giants and um, what I consider the crucibles, Against which one would um, would measure uh, how recent translations have, um, have done.
0: Now, am I correct in my history? Fifteen forty nine, when this book begins to be codified, that's just prior to the real kind of beginning of the the British monarchical empire that then begins to spread by sea across the world. Is that correct? And so, as the British fleets are going to different lands and making them part of the empire, are they taking this book and taking this language? And are they helping to sort of plant seeds of this kind of English around the world? Do I have that correct?
1: Fundamentally, you are correct. But it depends also what, what period you're exactly talking about. For example, Edward VI was the monarch and the Book of Common Prayer was put together. And he died when he was very young and then Mary the First. Bloody Mary tried to overturn the Reformation that had occurred under Edward the Sixth. Now she was then succeeded by Elizabeth the First. It during that period the English Church become so uh, routinized in the culture that it was impossible for the Catholic Church uh, to compete with the Anglican Church, which is the state church, as you know and in in England. And it was during that time that so much of the Book of Common Prayer began to circulate through, and thereafter began to circulate throughout the world, including Canada and the United States and, you know, uh, other such such places.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to the poet and author, Jay Chester Johnson, about his new book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to poet and author J. Chester Johnson about his new book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. Well, we were talking about the Book of Common Prayer, and it began to be codified in 1549, but it went through several revisions over the centuries. And that brings us back again to W. H. Auden and his role in the 1979 revision of the book. So, why don't we pick up there? and talk about his involvement in the revision of the Book of Common Prayer.
1: Both of Auden's grandfathers were Anglican clerics. In other words, you know, they were priests within the Anglican Church. He was um, he was very influenced by his mother, who was a high Anglican, and instilled in him the love of the language that had had been codified in fifteen forty nine before he ever became conscious really of writing poetry that within his memory banks had the language of the Book of Common Prayer had played a, a very important role in in the way in which he came about to think about rhythm and and language itself. There had been very few major revisions to the Book of Common Prayer. And Auden was very concerned about the extent to which revisions would occur, and he had deep uh, reservations about that. Now, he didn't have so many reservations about the psalms and the revisions that would be done in the psalms that were part of the Book of Common Prayer, because since the Great Bible of 1540, and it was those psalms that went into the uh, Book of Common Prayer...
0: Well I, and I want to come back and talk about your own work with the committee but there are a couple of pieces I want to linger with in what you've just given us. So first of all, I want to go back to when you said that Auden was concerned about some mistakes that were there in the Book of Common Prayer. For some of our listeners that might that might be jarring to hear that some scripture might have a mistake in it. When we use that kind of phrasing, what are we saying specifically? What what are the kind of mistakes that we're talking about?
1: Well, and, and bear in mind, I worked on the Psalms, so uh, I, my examples will would be um, uh, will relate to the um, to to those instances. Uh, there were just instances. For example, Miles Coverdale would, in the Psalms, from his fifteen forty Great Bible, would translate a word that we would use now as judgment and he would use the word promotion. But and so there are series that you go through within the Psalms and you can pick that out. But the major problem that that we confronted in dealing with Coverdale's translation was that he did something that we translators would not do now, and that is that he he participated, he he wrote with elaborations. That meant that he wasn't really violating the sense of a psalm, that um, then he would elaborate a bit. And um, there are, you know, there are examples of that where the underlying Hebrew would not support what he had said. And, and there are there, there are a number of examples of that as well, uh, because he would just—he he was such a stylist, and he, he was a—he had such capacity in terms of the, the, the language, the English language, that he wanted to enhance what he had, re- what he was reading from translations, to make it as appealing as possible. And as one scholar put it, a century or so ago. That he could not consider—he could not consider himself a scholar, but he could certainly consider himself as a stylist. So, when there was any doubt what he would do in writing or translating, he would fall to the side of being a stylist, and, and that's where we come with come out with the term. Elaborations, and so there's a lot of there was a, there's a lot of that that um, we had to correct within his psalms. Now, our goal was to maintain Coverdale as much as possible, and I think that that we succeeded in it. But where there were uh, there were obvious elaborations or mistranslations, we made the correction. And actually, Auden didn't have that much. He didn't have trouble with that where um, although he would forgive Coverdale more in terms of elaboration than the committee would as a whole,
0: and so when Coverdale is making these choices, so he, he takes promotion instead of judgment as the word choice, is that a factor of English being in flux at the time and there being a wide-open vista about what words could be chosen? Or was this really something that we could put squarely on the shoulders of him just choosing language that was stylistic as opposed to accurate?
1: It's, that's an excellent question. Part of it was his own decision and conclusion about what that word should be. But bear in mind, uh, I'm, I was going to use the word mystery, but it's uh, the unknown factor about the great Bible of 1540 and, and all, particularly the Psalms, which are distinctly he, uh, Hebrew poetry. He was not a Hebrew scholar he w- he knew Greek, Latin, and German, and um, the Lutheran Bible had been—because bear in mind, we're in the midst of the Reformation at that time, and Luther had put together his, the Bible uh, about mm, 20 years before uh, the 1540 Bible came out, and so Coverdale largely relied on retranslating the Greek, Latin, and German, to come up with his psalm. So some of the mistakes that he put into in, in into the 1540 Great Bible are really mis- his carrying forward mistakes that had been made in earlier translations. But most of them, I don't want to overdo that. I, a lot of them, as I said, were simply a function of his being such a stylist that he wanted to rely on his poetry and people loved that and for 400 years that's exactly what we had i mean the, the king james version relied very heavily upon up, upon coverdale's language even uh, because it had been so inculcated within the english language and the english ear so they were you know they they made some slight adjustments and used it as a foundation. Coverdale's um, Psalms uh, within King James version. So um, he he is you know he was deeply a force within uh, for a better part of you know 400 500 years in terms of uh, the English language as reflected in the, certainly within the Psalms.
0: Well, what I love about this is we have W.H. Auden, who has been, by your description, deeply shaped by this language. And then he gets the opportunity to turn around and help to preserve and shape and pass on this language to subsequent generations by working on the revision of the Book of Common Prayer in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Do you have a sense of how he felt about that? Did you ever have a chance to talk to him about about how he felt about that?
1: Well, my book cites letters between uh, from Auden to me. Uh, we maintained, a, even though um, I took his place, and we never served. Uh, we never served at the same time. We communicated quite a bit, and so I, uh, I I'm aware of of his views, not just in terms of the letters, but his views, generally speaking, and first of all, he was too much a scholar to discount the need to uh, uh, revise Coverdale's Psalms. He knew there needed to be changes, but it's a matter of degree, and I think the committee as a whole was more inclined to make more changes than Auden felt comfortable doing, although he, as I said, he was on the committee for three years, and there are a number of examples of of, um, where he made adjustments. But the other thing that concerned him was that Auden felt, as far as liturgical language, liturgical composition, that the 16th century was much better in drafting that language Uh, because ceremony—he had this—it's a very interesting view—he felt that great liturgical writing was bound up in ceremony, and that that the 16th century treasured ceremony in a way that the 20th century never did, that the 20th century was an informal and continues to be a very informal century. And therefore, he felt that we would never be able to um, compete with the language of of Coverdale or Cranmer in making changes and revisions to the Book of Common Prayer, because we do not think in terms of ceremony and having the ability to draft language that's consistent with ceremony, and liturgy is ceremony. So he had... I think he viewed—he he had fears that we would overdo it, that there would be more changes than would be necessary. But I actually think that if he—he you know, he, he obviously didn't love to see the final version of it, but um, there have been many commentators or several commentators uh, make the comment that the language of um, the Psalms contained in— the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is the current version used in the uh, used in Episcopal churches that it it's mostly Coverdale's 16th century language. I think generally speaking that's correct. We just made adjustments that were necessary and corrected the mistakes that the Coverdale had made but trying but keeping in the context and the style of Coverdale.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with poet and author Jay Chester Johnson about his book Auden, the Psalms, and Me. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com/notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with author and poet J. Chester Johnson about his new book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. You mentioned that you then took over for the work of W.H. Auden on these revisions of the Psalms, and you ended up working on that for about eight years. Can you tell us about what that process was like for you and how you felt about working on this revision?
1: It was an extraordinary experience. Obviously, I, I was in my, actually in my mid twenties when I took the position. I was appointed to the position, and I was by far the youngest person on the on the committee. But I ended up I, doing something that Auden hadn't done, and I, I, as I said, I served for eight years, and my first few meetings and we would meet twice a year here in New York City and and for for several uh, you know for like a 5 to 6 days uh, doing our work uh, going through a series of, of psalms but i realized that there was a tendency to uh, because it was dominated by—the committee was dominated—dominated uh, dominated is not a good word, but it, you get the sense—by uh, um, by scholars, Old Testament scholars, uh, Hebrew, Greek, Latin. So I felt that there was a need to—and I, I never talked with Auden about this, because I, I didn't have his view exactly what he was doing when he would go into a committee meeting—but what I did was I felt that we should take and just look at the, uh, not incorporate, but look at the way in which recent and respected translations of the Psalms had rendered these lines that were questionable from Coverdale, so that we could get a sense of refined poetry, that there's a great deal of there's a, I felt that, that showing scholars the variety of poetry and translation, or even the absence of poetry and translation, would sensitize the committee to that language and the nuances of poetic structure and results. And that's what I did. I, 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 all the Psalms I prepared... Like um, a compendium of eight of the more respected translations to show the scholars that you know you didn't you, we didn't have to be literal in our translation and certainly if we wanted to maintain Coverdale here are the options that others saw not in terms of they their role was not necessarily those other Bibles to to look at Coverdale the way we looked at it because Coverdale was not as Significant in their tradition as as in the Book of Common Prayer, I know that when I walked out of out of that process, that the Psalms echo in my consciousness and subconsciousness on an ongoing basis, and I'm I have no doubt that uh, the. And the rhythm and process of the way in which Coverdale brought the language together uh, had, a, had a continuing influence on the way that I, I viewed uh, English and, and the way that, that I would write the word myself. When I say the word, I mean the, my own poetry.
0: What I'm fascinated by in the description that you've just given, particularly this process that you did of of gathering together these respected translations, when I've spoken to translators, they've talked about a tension between what we might call functional equivalence or the more kind of rigid, literal, word-for-word attempt to render, this word means this and therefore we're just going to turn it into this, versus what we might call a more dynamic translation where you allow the idiom and the poetry of the language to rule over the literal meaning. And it seems to me, if I'm hearing correctly, what you were doing in putting together these compendiums of of options is you were trying to enliven the other co-laborers on this project to the fact that language is very rich and language has a lot of options for how you would render a certain phrase or a certain idea. Is that correct?
1: That, that's correct. You're exactly right about that, and uh, um, I. And the use of, you know, I use the word elaborations for Coverdale, but one could use the dynamic your word of the dynamics of of uh, letting the the sentiment push forward, extrude into the into the process of the of the um, translation. And but and there are many ways of accomplishing that. The problem with it is that. When elaborations or dynamics carry on to such an extent that they that it loses the original meaning, then I think the translator's responsibility is to bring it back to uh, as close to the meaning without damaging or, or attempting to do modest damage, if uh, if at all, to the original. Now, one of the issues with with Hebrew versus English. Is the the Hebrew poetry that we inherited had sh- uh, shorter lines? I mean, we the Hebrews believed in in, in shorter lines of verse and in and and in, in, in I guess shorter speech patterns, and they would have maybe two to three beats per line. But the American and English ear is uh, is much more comfortable with you know, four, five, even six beats per line. And so we had, that That was an issue we needed to deal with in terms of how they, because if we tried to uh, reflect precisely what the Hebrew poetry said, we would end up with a truncated version of the Psalms. And bear in mind that we use these Psalms for, recital, that is recitation, in services where the congregation re- repeats, and uh, maybe the the priest will say one line, and then the um, congregation will repeat it. Or There are various ways of doing that, and in addition to that, there is the plain song, which is a way of chanting the psalms, plus the Anglican chant which is, uh, was developed uh, in the late 16th century, probably early 17th century, which allows people to harmonize the psalms. Um, the, uh, the and so we needed for this to be singable as well. And we did have a musicologist who would work with us, uh, would attend our meetings, and uh, that responsibility uh, would not total response because we would all be participating in it, but how, how best could these, the lines be reflective of singability? And with truncated lines of two to three, uh, you know, two or three beats would not make them as singable and as chantable as what you would find in the Book of Common Prayer now.
0: Well, and so in working on this project for eight years, I'm wondering, if you're comfortable sharing it, how did this affect you spiritually? How was your faith affected by this daily process of going into this language and wrestling with how best to communicate it to future generations?
1: Well, that's a it's a great question, and one that I can answer, but... In some respects, it's still mysterious. Um, I actually read Psalms every day, even now, and I read them, you know, probably over. I, I don't do them every month. As a, there is a cycle among monks and <laughs> to do them, there. but I, I read them. You know, I probably finish them every every other month, and I they have become there's so much in the psalms i mean they're poems and a lot of people consider them you know something other than poems uh, i you know i've heard people talk and there are actually dom- denominations that will eliminate certain psalms within the 150 psalter 150 psalms within the psalter because they're you know they're they're gratuitously violent or they're nativist or they're you know, they, they have elements that one wouldn't necessarily consider of uh, the Judeo Christian tradition. But these are psalms. We're not looking at them as catechisms and they're but they are you know, it's the experience of of these poets who wrote so beautifully about their experiences and um, and that they and their faith and so the psalms definitely have in my working on this for eight years had a you know a significant impact on the way in which I looked at my my own strength of spirit and um, uh, you know I began to consider that we're, you know, we're, there's no such thing as really modern man in that, in that respect. I mean, we've, we've all been searching and for, for, you know, 3,000 years when the first Psalms were being written in northern Israel to the current. And many of the questions and many of the reactions and emotions that we, we feel existed back then, and that we can, in fact, be comforted by that by that fact. And uh, So it's um, it's been both comforting and, and at the same time, you know, some of the Psalms are quite, as I indicated, quite bloodthirsty, And uh, but I take them for what they are. They're intimate, they're personal, they're... They are, other, they are poems like we read today. I'm astounded in some cases how, how close the uh, situational psalms are to situational poems that we, that we may read in poetry journals today.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with poet and author J. Chester Johnson about his book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a frontlines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with poet and author J. Chester Johnson about his book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. Well, Mr. Johnson, I'm aware that your service to the revision of the Book of Common Prayer was not your last service to the Episcopal Church. And in particular, I'd like to ask about some more latter-day experiences that you've had. You were the author of Liturgy of Offense and Apology, and that was for the National Day of Repentance in 2008. I'm wondering if you would be willing, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with what that was and how that came about, if you could talk a little bit about both the National Day of Repentance and your role in it.
1: Well, the Episcopal Church decided that it would apologize for its role in transatlantic slavery and related evils through its general convention. The general convention is the authorite meets every three years. It's made up of delegates from all over the country, and and, um, they passed a resolution that um, the national church as well as the diocese, individual diocese would be expected to apologize for their for the church's institutional role in in, in, in slavery and related evils, and, and for, on the national basis, they decided to the church decided to hold a, um, a national service on October the fourth, two thousand and eight, where bishops would come in from around the country, and there would be a um, an official service. Conducted by the presiding bishop. But in order to, to create the message of redemption, desire for redemption, repentance, there was a need to put a litany together of poetry and prose. And I was asked if I would write the litany of offense and apology for the day of repentance and, uh, for the Episcopal Church. Which I did, and we the event was held at the first African American Episcopal Church in the country um, that was down in Philadelphia, and um, so that event was um, was held and utilized my litany of of offense and apology. It was a little, you know, some. In some ways, I was a bit controversial in that respect. I'm a, you know, I'm a white Southerner. I grew up along the Mississippi River in Southeast Arkansas, in so-called Mississippi River Delta, and I grew up in a segregated society. And you know, what is, what is this person doing, writing the litany? And yet, on the other, on the other hand, there was the argument, well who would be better able to write a litany than a white southerner and you know there was a little controversy in the church about my writing it but when the litany came out and people read it and responded to it um, the controversy sort of disappeared
0: So as you were writing this, I mean, I recognize that some people were pushing back against you on sort of identity grounds, but how did it feel for you to be a white Southerner raised in a racist community on the banks of the Mississippi River? How did it feel for you to be writing this?
1: Well, in some ways it has. By doing it, there was a deeper act of repentance on my part. I mean, I, I have... Uh, civil rights has always been an important function in my life, and I don't have to go through that. But it's been an important element. And yet, you know, I I, I come from a family. I mean, uh, on both sides of my family, who'd been in Arkansas for years, and there were slave owners. And and my grandfather, my maternal, my father died when I was one. My maternal grandfather. And and his wife uh, took me in, but I'm saying talking about my maternal grandfather because he was the one who actually took care of me. He had retired, and I later on found out that um, he had participated in a race massacre. And, you know, these are things in your background that while you didn't personally do it, you, you know, the, there are uh, crucibles that occur in your life that bring to bear those inheritances that you would prefer didn't belong to you. But uh, so writing this had, you know, goes beyond sort of a cathartic experience to a much more spiritual depth of, of it was a part of me to realize that there was an element of repentance involved. And um, not necessarily for me individually, but certainly what I represented a lot of people, and that is being white Southerner, and whose um, whose background includes the elements that I've just recited in terms of of um, you know, and, and my maternal grandfather, whom I adored. He, I mean, he, I lived. He basically took care of me for five or six years. You know, he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and um, uh, so it it was very personal and um but at the same time I'm just so thankful to the Episcopal Church that it gave me the opportunity to to write a piece that had this repentive nature to it for my own self
0: I'm wondering is is there one or two psalms in particular that that you come back to, that give you particular strength or hope.
1: Yes, one thirty nine. Uh, there are many wonderful lines, and if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there you will lead me, in right hand will hold me fast. I mean the poetry in that, and also the the promise and the salvation that it that it communicates is. Uh, is really extraordinary. And then 103 is also not necessarily for its poetry, but for its sentiments.
0: Well, J. Chester Johnson, I want to thank you for your service to the church. Your book, Aud in the Psalms and Me, is powerful. I I learned a great deal from it, and I hope that our listeners will, will pick it up. But I just want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes to speak with us today.
1: Well, it was my pleasure, and I I certainly appreciate the uh, the opportunity to to answer your questions and to be part of your audience.
0: We've been speaking today with Jay Chester Johnson. He's a poet, essayist, and translator. Johnson has published numerous volumes of poetry, most recently St. Paul's Chapel and Selected Shorter Poems in its second edition. His writings have been published domestically and abroad and translated into several languages. He has also composed many works on the American Civil Rights Movement, six of which are included in the Civil Rights Archives at Queens College. From 1971 to 1979, he worked on the revision of the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer, a position he took over from the late English poet W.H. Auden. He writes about this experience in his book, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja, our show was made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo ncom notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio.